Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Everyone has a dream. When you're young, it might be to become an astronaut or a firefighter or to play in a rock band in front of thousands of screaming fans. We live with our heads in the clouds because we don't want to face what's waiting back for us on Earth. Reality. Reality has a nasty way of knocking down our dreams, sometimes for good, but not for Albrecht Burblinger. Whenever his dreams were swatted out of the sky, he simply aimed higher. Albrecht Burblinger, let's call him Al for short, was born in the city of Ulm in 1770 in the kingdom of Prussia, now part of Germany. The youngest of seven children, Al's parents were poor. His father worked in the city's armory, which Al would often visit when he was younger. As a result, he got a good look at the kinds of tools and machines that his father worked with. They might have been the inspiration for Al's dream of becoming a watchmaker. However, when he was 13 years old, his father passed away. It's unclear what had become of his mother, although it's probably safe to say that she was also gone because Al was sent to an orphanage until he became an adult. He never let go of his love of mechanics, though, but his new guardians had other plans. He was forced to apprentice with a local tailor, with the goal of one day establishing him as a tailor in his own right. But Al didn't want that. He wanted to build things, and not just watches. In his spare time, he tinkered with various inventions, such as a prosthetic device meant for those who had suffered from foot amputations. In fact, in 1808, he created the first ever jointed leg prosthesis. But soon, Al began setting his sights higher, much higher. He grew a preoccupation with the concept of human flight. It all happened when he started watching how owls soared through the sky. He noted the shapes of their wings and how they spread out when the owls took flight. And then he got to work. He built something akin to a hang glider, which would allow him to fly short distances from the tops of vineyard walls and cottages there in Ulm. Others in town didn't think that he could do it, though. The Guild of Tailors even tried to expel him for his lack of focus on his trade. He was fined for wasting his time on his inventions. But Al refused to give up. King Frederick I of Württemberg even promised him funding if he could prove that his idea worked. Now, the original plan was to leap from the Ulm minister's 100-meter-high roof, but few people believed that he would be successful. Instead, he was instructed to jump from a 7-meter-tall scaffold that had been constructed on top of a 13-meter-high wall overlooking the Danube River. His goal was to land on the other side of the river, a distance of about 40 meters. And so, on May 30th of 1811, Al strapped into his glider as the king, his sons, and the crown prince of Bavaria looked on. Al, however, couldn't do it. He told everyone his glider had broken and that the flights would have to wait until the next day. But the king was leaving then to attend some royal business. His brother, Duke Heinrich, stayed to watch that event the following afternoon. So finally, on May 31st, the time had come. Hours went by as Al waited for the winds to die down enough for him to safely launch himself. He had planned to jump at 4 p.m., but one hour later, everyone, including the duke, felt that they had waited long enough. 
A police officer, also sick of the delay, shoved Al off the wall. And the rest was history. But not in a way that aspiring aviator had hoped for. He dropped like a stone into the river below and had to be fished out by actual fishermen. And he was booed and jeered. His reputation was irreparably tarnished, and he not only lost the public's goodwill, but he also lost their business. He was no longer a tailor, nor an inventor. Albrecht Burblinger died without a single cent to his name at the young age of 58. Hundreds of years later, however, his work was eventually vindicated. For one, experts realized that there was little to no chance that he would have ever gotten the glider in the air so close to the Danube as the river created a downdraft that would have kept his wings grounded. And second, researchers inspected his design and found no flaws. In fact, had he taken off from a more appropriate location, he most likely would have succeeded. All he needed was a better launching spot and some encouragement from his neighbors. A little wind beneath his wings. At the top of the world resides the North Pole, comprised of the Arctic Ocean and numerous landmasses, many of which are covered in ice. In June of 1871, the USS Polaris left New York to become the first vessel to reach the North Pole. The expedition was led by Arctic explorer Charles Francis Hall, with backing from the United States government. The ship's crew included the sailing master, engineers, cook, and astronomer, as well as chief scientist Emil Bessels and Frederick Meyer, the ship's meteorologist. The two German men were highly educated and skilled, which made them valuable assets on the voyage, but it also rendered them insufferable to everyone else. Bessels and Meyer didn't think too highly of most of their fellow crew, especially Commander Hall, who they felt was not smart enough to lead them. With half the crew being German and the other half being made up of Americans, Swedes, and Danes, the ship was a veritable melting pot, one that seemed to be getting more heated by the day. Things started off okay, with the ship chugging along on its way north. However, by October, Commander Hall began to feel sick. He'd gotten a stomachache after drinking a cup of coffee, which grew into delirium and partial paralysis. Dr. Bessels tried to treat him, but Hall wouldn't let him. He didn't trust him at all. In fact, he believed that Bessels and the German side of the crew were plotting against him. Specifically, he felt that they had poisoned him. But there was no proof. His condition had gotten so bad by early November that he had no choice but to allow Bessels to administer treatment. But sadly, it was too late. Hall succumbed to whatever had been plaguing him on November 8th. He was buried in a small basin off the northwestern coast of Greenland called Thank God Harbor. The crew still attempted to reach the pole that June. Three of the Polaris's whaleboats were dispatched to navigate the icy waters, and one after the other, each boat was destroyed by the ice. Even the Polaris itself couldn't find a safe route to the pole, and the main objective of the whole voyage was abandoned. The ship eventually turned around and headed south, back towards home. But months had passed since their attempt at the pole, and more ice had now moved into the waters they were traveling through. The Polaris collided with a berg on the evening of October 15th and began taking on water. The new commander, sailing master Sidney Buddington, told everyone to toss cargo onto the nearby ice to reduce weight on the ship. Nineteen crew members, including Inuit hunters who had been on board, abandoned the ship as well, and spent the night huddled together on the ice, expecting the Polaris to sink to the bottom of the ocean. The following morning, though, they woke up to find that the Polaris was about ten miles away, 
and still afloat. It turned out that the leak wasn't as bad as they had originally thought. Unfortunately, this group was stranded, and the Polaris wasn't coming back for them. They had some food and a few small boats, but little else to survive. Luckily, the Inuit hunters knew how to keep everyone alive. They built igloos from the ice and caught seals that kept everyone well-fed for some time. For months, they endured a harsh Arctic winter as the ice drifted south. One of the boats was broken down to create a fire. A crew member fashioned a deck of cards from some paper so that people could play games. And as time went on, animosity between the Germans and the others increased, so much so that it was believed that the armed Germans might kill one of the hunters. The group also had to contend with their ice flow breaking up beneath them. Sometime around April, all 19 survivors piled into the one remaining lifeboat and floated onward hoping for a miracle. And on April 30th of 1873, it finally came when they caught sight of a sealing ship out in the distance. They were soon picked up after having drifted a total of 1,800 miles over the course of six months. Everyone had survived, along with those who had remained on the Polaris. They were eventually rescued by a whaling ship that July. Once all parties were back on dry land, an inquiry was held to determine the truth behind Captain Hall's death. There wasn't enough evidence to pin it on vessels, so it was declared that Hall had died of a stroke instead. Although the accusations followed Bessels around for the rest of his life, and probably for good reason. In 1968, almost 100 years after the expedition, an author who had been writing Hall's biography requested to travel to Thank God Harbor and exhume the body. He wanted to see for himself what had caused the captain's death. The corpse was in very good condition due to the permafrost around the coffin and the writer was able to take samples of Hall's bone, hair, and fingernails back for testing. The results revealed the shocking truth behind the captain's untimely demise. Arsenic. And a lot of it, too. Bessels suddenly became a prime suspect once again, especially when it came out that both men had been pursuing the same woman back in New York, a sculptor named Vivi Reem. Bessels had most likely been jealous of Captain Hall when it became clear that Reem had preferred the latter's company to the not-so-good doctors. But Bessels was gone. He had died in 1888 when he was only 40 years old. Ironically, from a stroke, the same cause that was declared by the inquiry committee investigating Captain Hall's death. Some might call that karma. Me? I just see it as a stroke of bad luck. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.